Hey all souls, Pastor Harvey here. Uh, great to be with you today. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, if you've never visited our church, we'd love to see you sometime. Uh, so come over to the church, 10 a.m. on Sundays. Uh, this sermon I preach to the camera, but I preach the same sermon on the following Sunday. So, uh, Also, you should know that the writer's strike is still going on and we're across the street from Disney Studios, so you're going to hear honking and yelling and who knows what else. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll just make our way through it. All right, so we're uh, going to continue now in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're a few weeks now into the book of Genesis and we're traveling through from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50. And we should finish right before Christmas time uh, in Genesis 50. Uh, but today we're in Genesis chapter 2, so go ahead and turn there. And um, I'm going to be preaching on Genesis 2, 4 through 25 uh, about the garden, the Garden of Eden. And uh, in this series in Genesis, we're looking at the origin of everything. And what, what we're going to see today is that the garden is the first dwelling place that God is with humans in the Bible. Uh, but then the Bible actually ends in a garden as well, which we're going to see in just a minute. All right, with that, let's go ahead and read the text, then we'll pray, then we'll get into it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field had was yet on the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. <clears throat> then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx and stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you created the world and you created us, and you created us for, for perfection. And we long for the day when perfection will be here again. Uh, Lord, teach us, though, as we look at this, what the true nature of humanity is, uh, what our purpose is, what you're calling us to do, and how we're called to reflect you in this world. And may we all understand our value as human beings and the great love that you love human beings with as we study this as well. And help us this uh, passage also to frame our understanding of this world that we're in and what you meant for it to be versus what it has become. And we're thankful that you ultimately will redeem it all and make it whole again. So we pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, uh, here's what I want to say to you today from this passage that we just read. That we are made for perfection, purpose, and people. Perfection, purpose, and people. So. I realize that we're not living in perfection now and none of us are perfect now, but what I want you to see is that originally God's intention was that we were made for perfection. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it's saying here, now here's the generations. This is how people uh, begin to come upon the earth. Now, one thing you have to understand about Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is one section telling the whole of the creation story. Now what we have happen in chapter 2 is a part of the creation story, specifically day 6 and some other events that happen after that. God zooms us in and we now zoom in on the story of, of the events of day 6 and, and events that follow after that. So while the first chapter 1 was the whole creation story kind of told, told in poetry form, now we're getting into the, the story between God and human beings and how that all came to be and how the Garden of Eden came to be. Verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. A mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. So at this point in creation, uh, the, God had not yet caused it to rain. Somehow there was a mist coming up that was watering everything. Also, God had not yet made humans, and so there was nobody to work and keep the ground, which we're going to find in just a minute, is part of the human's responsibility to take care of this world, have dominion over this world, and uh, work in this world uh, for God's glory. All right, then verse 7. This very important verse of Scripture, of course. Uh, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So I want you to see this here. Uh, God forms the man, and when he forms the man, he he forms him from the dust of the ground. You know, when um, there's a passage in Scripture that says that we are dust and to dust we will return. We have to, what we see here is that we are humans and we're these glorious creatures, but we're made from the dirt. And I want you to see also that God, God is hands dirty 
to create us, to make us. He, he reaches down into the dirt to form us. And so a human being is this amazing combination between formed from dust and the image of God. Uh, formed from dust, and as it says here, the breath of God is breathed into this person. So if you can imagine, to be a human being is to have the breath of God blown into you, to blown upon you, so that you now become a living creature in the way that He is. Uh, you image Him. Whereas the rest of the animals, you know, they're, they're living creatures that live and move and breathe. We, as human beings, when God created us, and He created us perfect, were created to... Uh, to reflect Him and, and be uh, a representative of Him in the earth. And this all comes from the fact that He breathed into us. So He takes this dust, forms it, and breathes His life into it. It's an incredible thing because God didn't do that for the rest of creation, but He's done that with us. And if that tells you anything, it tells you about the value and dignity of every single human and that you are valuable to God just by being human. I take, apart from any of your performance, apart from even your belief in the gospel, by just being human, you're important to God and you matter to God and you're on God's mind and you're His creation. Okay? That's a, if you don't understand that concept, the rest, the rest of Christian theology is not going to make a whole lot of sense. A lot of times in Christian theology, we start with like, man fell short and God sent Jesus. Yes, but don't forget that we're created in the image of God with purpose and value, and then man fell short. And God redeemed us because He has purpose and value upon us. He didn't just redeem us uh, for whatever reason, it, for, for nothing. It was, it was because we reflect Him and because we have value as human beings. So God takes this human, and, and, he, and then it says this in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden, in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I love this imagery. He plant, God plants this garden. So he's, he's made the world, but now he, he's made this garden, this specific area that is filled with beauty. And filled, the, as we saw in the reading, all these rivers are running back and forth through it. And, and just everything is provided for. And God has carved out this space for the man to live, to work, and to, to have his life reflecting God and also to work the ground that God had given to them. So God takes and places him in the garden. Think about that. In, in the same way God has taken and placed you in your life, in your point in history as well. This is no mistake. Adam was this first man placed in the garden, but you also have purpose and God is placing you as well as he is in control of the whole world. Now look at this. Um, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. So when he puts him in this garden, not only does he put him in the midst of beauty that would blow your mind, uh, unfettered beauty, not fallen beauty like we have in this world now that is somewhat broken, but complete and total beauty, everything as it's supposed to be, complete shalom, everything is radiating God's glory, and this is where he puts them. But then he also takes and plants fruit trees and food and puts it there for the man to provide for the man, showing that God is the provider for humanity, that he is taking care of humanity. He took care of this first human, and he's taking care of humans now and that we are in his hands that he he is truly involved but look what it says this the next in this garden it says the tree of life 
was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life. One of the things that, that you'll understand as you study the Bible and look through it is that the tree of life is a very significant uh, piece of uh, biblical history because of what it represents. The tree of life is, 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 was truly a tree, as we see here, but it also represented something. It represents the presence of God. So wherever we see the tree of life in the Bible, it's mentioned a handful of times, every time you see the tree of life, you also have the presence of God. So not only is this a beautiful garden, but this garden has the tree of life in it. In other words, God's presence is in this place. In other words, this garden is a temple for God. It's a temple for God uh, to be worshipped, and it is a temple in which humanity can worship God. And so God has constructed this, this outdoor, beautiful garden temple for this man to live in and to live in total perfection. Now, uh, it says after that that there was rivers flowing through, so there's plenty of water and fishing and whatever else. But also it says that there was gold all over the place and different beautiful stones. And so God not only planted this garden, but he had made it with, with gold and onyx and all of this beauty. And here's where this man is living. But also think about this. This human being is perfect. I did a little reading on this and, and some people, you know, you, it's only speculation, but I think there's good reasons to think this. Martin Luther talked quite a bit about how um, this man, perfect, not fallen, would have had the strength of some of the animals or the speed and agility of some of the animals. There was no fallenness, no brokenness, no death. The body was not breaking down. There was no sickness. There was no hindrance in any, any, any way. So if you think he's a perfect person at this point, Adam is, with perfect intellect, Imagine that. Like, I was looking up, like, people that, um, you know, with high IQ, you know, like, uh, obviously, Einstein or Mozart. You know, one funny one I found is uh, one of the higher IQ people uh, out there is Snoop Dogg. He has a 140 IQ. <laughs> and, and Lady Gaga, too. And Ashton Kutcher, that was random. But most of the list is people that you would expect, scientists and brilliant artists and, and whatnot, and there's a few randoms in there. But if you can imagine... Uh, Adam has perfect intellect. His IQ is as perfect as can be. His thinking is as clear as it can be. Uh, he has perfect emotions, emotions that never lead him astray, that, emotions that he could actually trust. Like in a fallen condition, we can't always trust our emotions, but he had perfect emotions. He had a perfect outlook on the world. And if you can think about this, he was sinless. Just that alone, like never sinning, never messing up, never getting anything wrong, sinless. He, he probably, as Martin Luther said, had great strength, way beyond what a human being would have now. Agility, speed, perfect eyesight, and capacity to enjoy beauty. You know, like, I, I think that we have some capacity to enjoy beauty, but we're so distracted by so many other things going on in our minds and hearts that sometimes we can't absorb it all. But he has this perfect capacity to enjoy beauty, perfect capacity to enjoy music. We know that God was already singing things into creation and there was music involved. Perfect capacity to understand in the creation and, and navigate creation. Perfect capacity, as we'll see in a minute, uh, to lead all of the animals. But ultimately, he had perfect capacity to worship and know God. 
Now, anybody who is a Christian knows, like you've been in moments where for a brief moment you had the presence of God, maybe in a song you're worshiping and, and you know and you see and you feel him and you just, it's so clear and you, it is so uh, refreshing. But that, that moment can fade so quick. I mean, you, you start to even notice yourself in that place and then you lose it. But if you could imagine, Adam had perfect capacity to enjoy all the goodness and beauty of God 24-7 without interruption. He, he, as we'll find out in a couple of weeks, he walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. There was this perfect relationship between humans and God in this perfect temple, in this perfect place called Eden. All right, not only is he a perfect person, but think of this, he's in a perfect environment. <laughs> Uh, the sights were perfect, the smells. Can you imagine that there were bugs that don't bug you there? Uh, animals that are not hostile, no thorns, no weeds, no infertile soil, no traffic, no hate, no addiction, no conflict, no paper cuts, no allergies, no migraines, no selfishness, no getting old, no calories. Can I get an amen on that one? Uh, wine without addiction. You'll never lose the remote in this situation because everything is perfect, right? Uh, no sickness, no trauma, no violence, no gossip, no judgmentalism, no anger, no tears, no DMV, no taxes, okay? Perfect environment. Perfect man in a perfect environment, and he's with God. We're made for perfection, you see. The reason why we're so upset as human beings is because we're no, we know we're made for a perfect world. We're, we know that we are made for perfection as human beings and we can't do it. And so we struggle and, and we're, we struggle in the midst of this imperfect world. But if you could understand that that's actually what you're made for. See, one of the greatest proofs of God is actually the fact that everybody thinks that things should be better than they are, even though the only experience we have is everything has been broken. But what the scriptures do is they give us an answer to that longing that we have, this longing for things to be right, because there was a time when it was right. There was a time when it was perfect. There, was, there, there is a deep memory in the human psyche that knows this. And the scriptures testify to it as well. Well, um, not only is he made for perfection, are we made for perfection, but we're made for purpose. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, so here we're getting to where God is ruling as king uh, in his temple. And this is his temple, his kingdom. So if you can imagine, the Garden of Eden is God's temple and God's kingdom. And he has uh, the animals and the birds and the trees and all this. And he has this man who is reflecting him. And this man has a mission. Here's what it says. The man's mission is to work the garden and to keep it. So I want you to hear this. Work is not part of the curse. Okay? Work is good. Now... Work has now been cursed, and now we have thorns and thistles and problems in all of our work. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But work is good, and we all know this. Like I, You know you've been in the middle of something, and, and like maybe it's just even simply picking up your house, or maybe it's something like 
writing something significant like a song or a paper or a book. Or maybe it's something like you, you construct at home or maybe it's flowers that you're taking care of or maybe it's something uh, that you've made from uh, scratch in the kitchen. Whatever it is, like we know we're made to work and that when we work we get joy and when we accomplish work and we can sit back and enjoy it, we say this is good. So the reason why we have this bad taste in our mouth about work as humans is because of the curse that's on it. But originally, work is good. Like, so uh, can you imagine having a job where there was no problems and it was only delight to do the job? That's where, that's the situation Adam was in. But it also tells us that we as human beings are meant to work, but also to keep this temple, to keep this land, to keep this garden, but also to keep this earth. That it's our job to, to, as human beings to make sure we take care of this earth. Now, obviously, human beings haven't always done a great job with that. Uh, between deforestation and polluting the oceans, and we can go on and on and on. We have taken God's perfect world and we have pulled out its resources in irresponsible ways. But that's not the intention. God wants us to keep it as our responsibility. And so here we can see that God commands a purpose for human beings. Uh, work without frustration with all the energy you could ever want. Can you imagine that? No frustration and all the energy you could ever want to do the work. And even with that, they still took a Sabbath, by the way, as a throwback to last week's sermon responsibility without exhaustion are, are you ever feel exhausted by all your responsibilities i do but here he had responsibility without exhaustion he had purpose he had great joy in what he was doing god commanded him to enjoy the garden and enjoy its fruits and work it and keep it so in other words god made this world for joy god made human beings for joy this world is supposed to be something else. It's now been distorted. And this longing that we have in us for a better place is, is real because, there, like I said, there's this memory in the human psyche that knows that there was a better time and is looking for a better time as well. And now, so that was the first command, work it and keep it. Second command, he said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. Now, the, I want you to emphasize here, like hundreds, thousands of the best fruits, not fallen fruit, not fallen vegetables, not fallen food. I'm talking the best possible food where the flavors are 10 times what they would be right now for you and I with no hindrance in enjoying them in any way, no digestive problems, no acid reflux after you eat some chicken wings. Like it's perfect, everything perfect. But he says, there's just one tree that I want you to eat of. That's the loss that this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat of that one. You can have everything else. So sometimes I think it, this is a perfect picture of how we think about God. Sometimes we can get so focused on what he says no to that we sometimes forget what he's saying yes to. And Christians can fall into this trap. People that are exploring the faith fall into this trap. But when he says no to something, like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's because he loves us and he knows what is best for us. It's not because he's trying to steal our joy, okay? When he says yes to something, he knows that this will cause flourishing and blessing in our life. So he says, eat of all the trees. That will bless you. That will cause you to flourish. Don't eat of this tree. That will harm you, okay? That was the command 
he was given there in the garden. So there's his purpose. Work it, keep it, enjoy life, just don't eat of this one tree. Now, I want you to see, so we've seen we're made for perfection, we're made for purpose. I want you to see that we're made for people. We're not just meant to be alone. Look what it says here. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is the, the, the first like kind of announcement of community in the Bible. That human beings are not to, meant to be isolated, but human beings are meant to be communal. Okay, So he's going to go into marriage here in just a minute. But I want you, for you that are, are single, those of you that don't plan to get married or have been married and don't plan to get remarried, you should know that uh, there are plenty of ways to accomplish what God wants for us here uh, other than getting married. You can accomplish that in the church. You can accomplish that with other relationships of people you're trying to win to Christ, family, friends. God doesn't want us to be alone. He's designed us to be communable. He's designed us to be with other people. And so God says, I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. But before he introduces Eve to him, he, God does this. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So remember, he has this perfect intellect. Thousands of animals are coming to him. He's naming them left and right. And for us, I think that would stress us out. We would run out of vocabulary at some point. But this is a perfect person with perfection and no limits on his mind or his heart or his abilities in any way. And so he names all the animals. So if you can imagine just for a moment, he is naming the animals and, you know, here comes a lion and then a tiger and a bear. And then there's some of the weird ones like an aardvark or a three-toed sloth or a plat duckbill platypus. Uh, you can see the creativity of God, but also a bit of the sense of humor of God in some of the ways that he makes these animals. I was looking up weird animals for this sermon, and I, I found a few pictures of some animals that were kind of hilarious. Like I found this Yoda bat. That It's a bat, but its face looks like Yoda. I mean, God is hilarious. <laughs> Um, he, but also creative. And, and so he's introducing his creativity to this man, and this man is enjoying all the creativity and saying, I get to name them? So he's you know, calling out their names as they come out, the dogs, the cats, the zebra, the fox, the chipmunks, the raccoons, the wolverine, whatever it is. And um, this is, so he sees all the animals, and of course he rejoices. And I think there's also something here that we should see, that when God wanted to provide some communal uh, uh, strength for the man, he also provided the animals. Of course, the ultimate communal thing he's going to give is his wife in just a minute. But we should understand this world that God has given the animals in that way too. And if you've ever had a pet, you kind of know what that is about and how animals can bring great joy to our lives. All right, so um, let's keep going. Uh, verse 20. Or verse 21. So the Lord, uh, so verse 20, sorry. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So these animals are all great, Lord. Uh, but there was still something missing. And it seems like Adam knew it. And God certainly knew it. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is an amazing concept that the woman is going to come from the man, especially because from now on, all men and women will come from women. But first, the woman has come from the man. Matthew Henry, who's a great uh, Puritan commentator from about three or four hundred years ago, he said this brilliant line. He said, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I love that. God creates an equal for the man, somebody he, he, he can share life with. And I love this thing. It says God makes the woman and then look what it says. He brought her to the man. God is so amazing. He's just blessing and blessing and blessing. He makes and he's so excited to bring the woman to the man. Why? Because the woman is made in God's image. The man is made in God's image. God is delighting in both of them. But also he knows that the man needs this woman, needs another human being to share life with. So verse 23, then the man said, this, this, not the aardvark, not the three-toed sloth, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is somebody I can commune with. This is somebody who has skin on like me. God communes with me, but this is, this is glorious. And I love, it says, uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you can almost imagine, you know, the first time he sees his wife. Here's a human. And remember, he's perfect and she's perfect. These are glorious human beings. I mean, I think, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about we would be tempted to fall down and worship them if we saw them. Glorious human beings. Uh, beyond superhero human beings perfect looking uh, to each other. And Adam sees her and he says, whoa, man, whoa, man. And I think it just stuck. He just called her woman from then on because she was taken out of man. So imagine though, the first time he sees her, she's like me, but there are just the right differences. But she's also more beautiful, uh, more delicate, more charming. There's something just enchanting about her to Adam. So now, not only has God blessed them, put them in this perfect place with perfect capacities, with perfect food, with perfect work, with perfection all around them, with animals uh, to, for entertainment and joy, and now they have each other as well. God is in the business of blessing and the passage after this, Moses says this, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this becomes the first marriage. And from their marriage, this first community, they create more community as they have children, and more community as they have children, and more community. And, his, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Imagine that. Human community with no shame. Uh, no physical shame, no emotional shame, no mental shame, 
perfect trust between the two of them. Um, no hiding, no division, no hurt. Complete compassion for one another. Complete pure love. They understood each other and they both felt understood and they were happy because they were known and fully accepted by each other and known and fully accepted by God. Now, what I just described, I hope you're longing for, I'm longing for it. Perfection, beauty, sinlessness, no hindrances. We're all longing for it. What made this place so glorious though, I don't want you to forget, is the tree of life was there. And that's because God's presence was there and that's what made it so glorious. And beautiful. Now, we obviously don't live in this perfect world. We live in a fallen world. But I want to tell you what is coming. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says this He who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the one who conquers is the one who puts their faith in Jesus. We conquer through our faith in Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, God makes this promise You will be with me where the tree of life is in paradise. Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We're going back to the garden. But we're going back to the garden with a whole bunch of people that Jesus redeemed. So here's the question. How do we connect to that? It, you know, if we, we feel the loss of the Garden of Eden and we want to be in the future Garden of Eden in the paradise of God where the tree of life is, Revelation 22:14 gives us the answer. It says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. The way that you have the right to the tree of life to get back to the garden at the end of all of this, at the end of the story, is to wash your robes. Now that sounds, doesn't sound that great. I mean, what does that mean? And how could I possibly wash myself? And how could I possibly make myself right? But in the context of Revelation, when it talks about wash your robes, that you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb in Revelation. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus that washes you. In fact, you don't even wash yourself, even though it uses that language. Jesus washes you. So listen, at the beginning of the story, we have the tree of life. At the end of the story, we have the tree of life. And in between, we have all of this brokenness. And humanity is trying to get where they were. How do I get back to the garden? That's what every human is doing, whether they know it or not. They're, they're all saying, how do I get back to in the garden? We well, gotta wash your robes. Now listen to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24. Talking about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the tree. So listen. 
if you long for the tree of life that was at the beginning of the story and you miss it, and you're longing for the tree of life that is at the end of the story, the way between the beginning and the end of the story is the tree of life in the middle of the story where Jesus hung on the cross. And it says in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Our healing is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our healing is in the tree of Jesus where he died upon the tree. The tree of death became the tree of life for us. So the passageway from the tree at the beginning of the story to the end is to go through the tree at the middle of the story and let your sins be washed away and forgiven. And then God says, trust me, believe me, and I will get you back to the garden. Let's pray. Lord, come quickly. We long for the day to be with you in your presence, to be unhindered, to be perfect, to never sin, to never have sorrow or sickness. We long for that day, and we thank you that you made provision through the tree, the cross on which Jesus died. Give us faith to wait. Give us patience to wait. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace and peace.